Welcome to movies. May I take your order? Yeah, um, see. Give me one utterly delicious milkshake, skinny calf, and order of onion rings. Thanks. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. Yes! Hey, hey, what's up? This is your boy A.A. Ron from the Growing Up Punk podcast. Welcome back. Growing Up Punk is a podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. We really appreciate you joining us today as we have an awesome episode for you. I will be talking with uh, Adam, who played in the band Craig's Brother and Too Bad Eugene, two bands that I really loved and had records that uh, were really impactful for me. Uh, Before we get to that, we would love for you to go check out our website at growingpunkpod.com. There you will find access to our YouTube, to um, other episodes and interviews, as well as album reviews and um, a weekly blog and all that kind of good stuff. So thanks for checking that out. Uh, we love your support and uh, we need it to keep this show going. And so uh, we really appreciate you being a part of that. So Adam was a part of one of my all-time favorite albums, and that was Homecoming by the band Craig's Brother. And uh, it, so this was a dream come true to get to talk with him. That's been one of my favorite albums for, for over 20 years now. And so it was awesome to get to chat with him and just see kind of what went into um, him joining the band and uh, putting that album together and kind of what happened after and and then also uh, why he left Craig's Brother to start a new band called Too Bad Eugene. So we get into all of that and a lot more. And uh, so I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this. Again, this was um, a dream for me to get to talk with him. It was such a blast. He was a super nice guy. And it was awesome just getting to kind of geek out about one of my favorite albums and, and just to get to ask him kind of what went into the making of that. And so we get into that and lots more. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy my interview with Adam from Craig's Brother. experience in your life that you would say kind of changed the maybe not even changed but just kind of put you in that trajectory kind of towards playing music um, and not even necessarily just playing music but you know pursuing it as a career and pouring yourself into it 
you know, whether it was a live experience or what uh, I would love to kind of hear um, about that. Yeah. My, um, my dad was in a band when I, as I was growing up. I mean, he was, he was in band since like, I think he was in high school oh, awesome. and had, had a college band that, you know, was uh, very active um, on, on the East coast. He was in, like East coast school. Um, but anyway, when I was growing up, yeah, he, uh, he had a band that played all the time. They were like a, you know, weddings and parties band. It was all like sixties beach boys and Beatles covers. Um, and every once in a while he'd put me on stage when I was like seven or wow. eight. Yeah. He'd have me, I, I would sing like, do you want to dance by the beach boys? Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I loved being on stage from, from that young of an age and, and just, yeah, seeing my dad be, cause he was like the front man of the band. He was the, uh, he, he kind of worked the crowd and he was really good at it and he's in his seventies and he's still good at it. Wow. He's, he's still, he's been playing music forever. Still does it. Yeah. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. So did that, like, how did that transition or kind of what happened between then and, you know, like, were you a teenager when you kind of picked up a guitar or you took lessons or just kind of learned because there was instruments around the house? Yeah, all that. Yeah. I I think I first picked up a guitar and decided I wanted to start learning it when we were like, we were camping and my dad had brought a guitar when I was like in fifth grade or sixth grade. And then like, I just sort of played around on it and stunk at it, but kept doing it. And, and my parents, I think, were sort of tired of hearing me not be very good at it. So they put me in lessons, I, I think, like toward the end of seventh grade, something like that. Okay. And then, yeah, by the end of eighth, I was like starting a band. Wow. Yeah. So you just found people at school that kind of had similar interests, or how did you pursue that? Did yeah. you feel like you kind of, you know, knew the ins and outs a little bit of, you know, what was needed to start a band? I think I, yeah, it was just, we just kind of all figured it out together. I had, you know, kind of a, a group of uh, like family friends, like my parents, kids that were my age that I had grown up with and gone camping with since we were little. And they were all from kind of similarly musical families. And we all just sort of picked our instruments and started playing around. Cause yeah, like my parents' house, especially, but pretty much all my friends' houses had musical instruments lying around. Hmm. So we would just pick them up and start figuring stuff out. You know, it was all awful, but we were having a lot of fun. Yeah. Like what kind of stuff were you playing? What was influencing you at that time? I mean, when we were in junior high, I, I almost don't think it matters. <laughs> um, like would it have just been like cover songs and stuff? Or were you, were you writing original we, stuff by, by then? I don't think we were good enough to, <laughs> to yeah, even okay, do yeah. covers. I do remember trying to figure out like smells like teen spirit. Yeah. Um, with, with those guys, that song is deceptively hard to do when you're like a junior high, unless you have like, just a really killer drummer. Right. Um, but I remember trying it and like, why does this suck? Um, cause it seems so simple. It's four chords and whatever. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So that, those were the, those were the starting points, like actually getting, you know, a band going, that was real was like sophomore year of high school. Okay. And by that point, yeah, the punk rock thing was happening nationally. Like my sophomore year of high school is when green days dookie came out. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a big deal, but at the same time, it was also when like, you know, our Santa Cruz scene, um, had two bands that were way more hardcore um good riddance was the one that kind of got yeah yeah really big 
but uh, there was another band called Fury 66 hmm. that did, you know, they did some stuff. They never got like huge nationally, but when they played a show locally, it was packed and crazy and it was hardcore. Oh, yeah. So we were interested in that. And we were studying like, you know, it was like an all of a sudden thing. It was like we were being in, we were hearing Green Day and the offspring take over the radio. We were going to see Fury 66 and Good Riddance locally. And we were doing like historical research on like Minor Threat, and Black Flag and Seven yeah. Seconds and, and Descendants and, and all that stuff was like, I mean, I, I remember, yeah, it's like a six month period. It was like learning so much music so much so fast. And that stuff, yeah, we were bringing it into the band room and seeing if we could figure it out and having a lot of fun. Yeah, so did seeing bands like that kind of, you know, planted in your mind, like, you know, maybe I could be doing this, or was it still, did it still seem kind of distant enough that that was one world and what you were doing was a totally different world? No, it, it, it wasn't like, maybe I could do this. It was immediately, we are going to do this. <laughs> wow. And it how was old, like, how old would have you been at that time? Like 15. Okay. Yeah. Well, and how did, I mean, you, you said your dad was a musician, like, was he excited about that, you know, going into that? Did he know much about that world or was it just, you know? No, like that was what was kind of fun about it was like how different it's like, you know, looking back on it, you know, immediately my favorite of all that stuff we were hearing was I, I really did like Green Day, like right away. Um, and I, you know, got into their earlier stuff from before Dookie. Um, but then descendants at the same time. Yeah. And the thing I loved about it was it was all the beach boys just turned up and a little faster. Yeah. Um, mm. and I, my dad kind of heard that, but you know, for the most part, he's like, it, like, you know, it's too loud and <laughs> it's too fast. And, but of course, as 15 year old kids, we loved that our parents hated it, right. um, but they were still supportive. Like, you know, when we would, you know, get into the band room and, and do have our band practices, they didn't really want to hear it, but yeah. they were super supportive uh, of us all doing that. So, yeah, yeah. that was. Yeah, I remember having a, a friend whose parents like would like put on punk albums in the car when we were driving around, and I just thought <laughs> it was like so odd. I was like, "Your parents are okay with this? Like, they're the ones initiating putting this on?" I just, I couldn't have fathomed something like that. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's just kind of kind of part of it so when did you kind of hook up with the the craig's brothers guys or kind of what happened in between those years of you know kind of like starting those initial bands in high school towards you know like getting better at your instrument and realizing like mm -hmm. okay i can write songs i can you know piece together parts with other musicians and actually make a go of it yeah so um yeah like sophomore year of high school i put together you know what was kind of an old school punk band influenced by um seven seconds and then like especially the misfits over time we oh, got yeah. really into that um it, but i was writing everything um and the other guys were into it as long as it was fun and didn't sort of cause too much of an inconvenience but as i was like okay we need to book more shows and as we were getting toward the end of high school i'm like okay high school is almost over we need to look for opportunities to like go out of town and they were like but then we can't go surfing and I was oh, yeah. like, who cares? Like, <laughs> let's do this. So I realized they weren't as serious about it. And it was that same year. Um, yeah, my senior year of high school, we did play a show with Craig's brother. Um, it was the first time I ran into them. And uh, Andy Snyder, their uh, guitar player. Yeah, like he, we struck up conversations right after that show because he saw, you know, I was I was doing 
some it, it was kind of funny because it was like this sort of old school punk stuff but i was i had been taking lessons on guitar so i was doing some stuff that was a little bit more metal mm. um metal e i guess and andy was into that so he's like hey we, you know we should talk and so then when um like a year later i think it was they uh they're like rhythm guitar player uh I was about to say left the band. I know there's more to it than that. And I'm not really, you know, I don't remember all the details yeah, about yeah, what happened with their earlier guitar player, but they reached out to me uh, because of, um, you know, just we, had, I think by that point we might've played a couple of shows together. And so they were like, Hey, we're, we're looking for a guitar player. And um, I was in a band at the time, like my high school band had broke up uh, during college. Cause a lot of those guys, uh, I forget why that happened, but um I was trying to start another band and that wasn't really working. So when mm. Craig's brother called and I knew they had like done one mini tour and had had an offer from a record label that they turned down. And I was super impressed by that. And I was like, okay, this is the kind of band I want to be hooking up with. Yeah. So they were, so, yeah, they were from like, the same area as you guys. Like, did you know them before that? No, so we're all from Santa Cruz County, but Santa Cruz County is an interesting place. Like, I grew up down by the beach. They were up in the mountains okay. and that's like, that's a different part of the County. And we never really crossed paths other than a couple of shows we played. So I didn't really know them. I, you know, they just knew who I was and I knew who they were. Um, so I, yeah, I didn't really know them personally until they actually called me and asked me to try out for the band. And then I joined the band. And so no, we didn't really know each other before that. Mm. And when you joined, like they had aspirations of like pursuing the band. Did you guys, you know, talk about that before you joined, or was it just kind of an exciting opportunity that you jumped at? No, yeah, for sure. That was that was a big part of it. I mean, what they, you know, I I knew their, um, yeah, like the reason they had parted ways with their earlier bass player and guitar player was that they wanted to go pro, and these other guys were kind of. I think they were both married was a big part of it okay. and couldn't really tour. Couldn't really put in the same amount of time. And they knew like, that's what I wanted to do. So that, yeah, that was all on the table right from the beginning. Let's, let's find, let's try to get signed. Let's make records. Let's go on tour. Let's do it. Yeah. So how did that go about getting signed tooth and nail? Was that like, what was that relationship like? How did that all come together? <laughs> that was totally me. Yeah, <laughs> right sense, on. like, they were finishing the what's now like the keep it keeping it real EP. Oh, yeah. I, I never I didn't play on that at all, but like I had like officially joined the band like the weekend before they went in to do final stuff on that. Um, but they, you know, what was a big conversation the whole time I was in Craig's brother and it continued into Too Bad Eugene was like what kind of relationship we wanted to have with this sort of Christian music thing. Cause right. that's what tooth and nail sort of represented. And Craig's brother, but when at the time I joined the band was just not interested in that. Yeah. They, the, the record deal they had turned down was from a smaller Christian record label. The tour they had gone on was this, you know, kind of a, with another Christian band. And they, they just kind of felt like that was, uh, that was the route for bands that weren't as good and like could only get those kinds of record deals. Yeah. Um, so they just weren't, they kind of felt like that was, I don't want to say beneath them. Cause it wasn't like a cocky thing. It was more just like their ambition. They yep. were like, we want to be aiming higher, but I was making the case that tooth and nail was at a place where I'm like, you know, yeah, I hear what you guys are saying about the, you know, the, the kind of Christian music thing in general, but I actually think tooth and nail 
has the same view of this. Like they're trying to, you know, crack into just sort of the regular musical scene. And I see a lot of their bands. I mean, MXPX was like right on the cusp at that point. Oh yeah. Um, and proving that tooth and nail could do those kinds of things. So that got them open-minded, but they were still kind of on the fence. And I, you know, I was, (laughs) they will all agree with this. I was like super pushy and argumentative. (laughs) I didn't, if I had an idea, I didn't take no for an answer that well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like one late night conversation where they were just sick of arguing with me. I'm like, so I can send a package to tooth and nail. They're like, uh, I guess. So I put the whole, I put the demo package together and kind of wrote the letter and sent it off to them. And yeah, I got a phone call like a week later. Wow. So, which was awesome, even though it was like for music I didn't make. <laughs> yeah. So were you, I was still like, whatever. Was there excitement about that or was there kind of apprehension or? What was the feeling when you when you actually got that call back? Be like, oh, okay, like we we can actually take this offer. They they got excited about it. I think you know once, um, they you know so yeah. I'm trying to see if I remember all this accurately. I want to say like slowly going the way of the buffalo came out like right around that time, and that seemed like okay. This is even though. That did go out on a major label, but I feel like that maybe this was before that. I don't, I'm getting the details yeah, yeah. crossed. That's all good. But there was like, that was like an impressive record. And then Slick Shoes were like, they were coming out and they actually like, you know, reached out to us too. When, when Tooth and Nail was still kind of like, we're checking out this band. They played the Craig's Brother demo for the Slick Shoes guys. They got excited about it. They called us and oh, they were like, awesome. Hey, are you guys going to join Tooth and Nail? You guys sound really good. We were like, what, what you guys are doing? And when we heard, um, the Slick Shoes, at that point it was just the Slick Shoes, like four song EP that had been put out. Okay. Yeah. Then the, all the Craig's Brother guys were like, yeah, okay. This does seem like this could be a good place for us. Hmm. Um, and then saw, you know, what was being put on the table in terms of, opportunity to record at west beach yeah where like the great bad religion records had been made that got all of us really excited oh yeah 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 was there like any other offers or was like was part was part of it like well we don't really have anything else so let's kind of see what happens or the there i don't remember whether we heard from any i don't think we sent it to any other like you know christian labels comparable to tooth and nail but you know one of the things was okay fine we'll send it to tooth and nail but we're also going to send it to like fat and epitaph yeah and um uh, i forget what other sort of comparable labels were at the time i remember lobster records which never really blew up yeah it was like oh they had some just getting started yeah yeah um i actually don't was that just i actually feel like i might be misspeaking that might have been a little bit later um, I know they put out a yellow card record, but that was definitely later. Yeah. Anyway, but like there was other labels, you know, totally outside the Christian thing. Um, not more than like maybe half a dozen total packages we sent out yeah. and no, we di- didn't hear back from anybody except for like a form rejection letter from fat records. Um, so that was like, all right, well, this is, this is the opportunity we're getting. So let's go for it. Yeah. And what was that relationship like? Was there any tension with that? Like once you guys started touring, you know, was there any pressure, you know, to play certain places? You know, I've I've heard so many stories about that where bands, you know, in a similar place like you, you know, you were okay with, you know, the Christian label, but then one started thing like things really started kind of getting pushed on you. Then it was really like, okay, this is not what we wanted at all. And I'll say from the time that the tooth and nail thing happened, I was only in the band about another year. 
Right. And nothing like you're describing while I was in the band, but I can't, you know, you'd have to talk to especially Ted Vaughn the singer for, you know, some things that maybe happened with them after that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but no, the time I was in it, they were, they were nothing but cool. Um, yeah, definitely never interfered on like touring with touring. It was just like, do whatever you want. Like, um, as long as you're out there playing shows, we're happy. Yeah. Uh, didn't really matter who you're playing shows for or where you're playing them. Just keep playing them. Yeah. And what was the touring like back then? Like, were you guys trying, you know, to be on the road eight months out of the year or was it more kind of tour over the summer and weekends and stuff? (sighs) Um, so like, you know, again, you'd have to talk to the rest of those guys because, uh, you know, the immediate thing was was get the album out, and then um, the album came out in the middle of the summer, and we toured pretty much that whole summer. And it was sort of during that touring that I, I just kind of realized my own, you know, uh, Craig's brother was something of a collaborative band, but Andy and Ted were definitely the leaders. Mm. And um, like, if I wrote a song no matter how excited I was about it, it kind of had to pass through their filters. It could, you know, it, it had to sort of be a Craig's brother song, um, sort of from, from their perspective. And I also, uh, I, you know, I really liked singing and the reactions I was getting from Miami were like, you know, I, I really would like to just be the singer of a band. Mm. So it was like midway through that summer. I, uh, you know, I had made the decision to, to leave the band. Um, so after that, you know, there, there, I know there was a bit of a restructuring and I, I don't know how, how much they were trying to tour after that. I just knew like I was in it for that summer and it was kind of a grueling summer. It was a lot of fun. We had, I mean, we, we toured with the Huntington's mm, slick awesome. shoes, dogwood, and like really became, it, it, we had really good times with those guys and there was some good friendships. Yeah. Um, um, so it was a lot of fun, but I also knew like th- this was hard and th- and that went with us. And when, when Andy and I left and did too bad, Eugene, uh, we, we waffled a bit on how, how hardcore we wanted to tour. We started with, with, you know, with ambitions to do it a lot, but it was hard again, like right away. And, yeah, I, I didn't keep up the, the strong touring work ethic very long. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, we'll get to some more of that. Um, so were you a part of writing um, the album Homecoming? Yeah, I wrote three songs on it. Okay. I, I think I wrote, you know, I probably wrote like five for it, but at least, you know, one or two of them. Yeah, no, I, I remember which two now. <laughs> yeah. That, they were like, eh, these really aren't that good. Mm. And that, that was, that stung my pride. And I, I probably didn't handle that super well yeah what was the whole process like like were you guys in a room together writing or was it just sending ideas or what did the process look like for putting that album and those songs together um like if i wrote a song or if andy wrote a song we pretty much just wrote it on our own and we came to the band room and like here's how it goes (laughs) and we just sort of told everybody their 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 parts Mm. um if ted wrote a song he you know he writes a song more like on like acoustic guitar and it's basically like the structure of the song the chords the the lyrics and the melody but then he he would go to andy and andy would sort of like you know put in the riffs and and you know make it more uh technical and kind of tighten the screws on it and i got to do that a little bit with them too um yeah there were there was a few songs i got to help sort of do some of the um development of 
in the, I guess, pre-production sort of phase. But yeah, for, for my songs, for Andy's songs, it was, yeah, it was totally non-collaborative. Mm. <laughs> and what was inspiring you as, as a songwriter at that period? Like, what were you, like, with the <laughs> songs, whether they got approved by the band or not, like, what was kind of making you excited or inspiring you? I mean, <laughs> it's probably not um, surprising to kind of, you know, hear what was out at the time and what we were being influenced by. You know, I uh, during the the songwriting phase of Homecoming, for sure, uh, Lagwagons, Double Platinum was their newest album out, and I was listening to it a ton. We all were. Yeah. Um, and the same with No Effects, So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. Um, I was thinking loved that record yeah and it was funny because like lyrically i don't really know it it didn't it didn't seem like he was dealing with a lot of really dark stuff but tonally it had this like melancholy to it Hmm. that i hear influencing a ton of like the song i wrote in memory which you know i was dealing with like a super heavy you know loss of a of a friend Hmm. and um so yeah like the 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 sonic kind of landscape of of that no effects record writing songs about i don't know just being a drunk and right (laughs) and whatever i was like yeah this is this speaks to what i'm what i'm feeling yeah 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 those influences you know at at that time i I i didn't know those bands so when i heard this album um it, that was the introduction to me to you know not necessarily hmm. like I'd, I'd listen to MXPX and Slick Shoes, um, you know around the, around that time, um, but yeah this this album to me um, kind of stands on its own even now that I've listened to bands like No Effects and Lagwagon like you hmm. know I, I'm not just trying to uh, to be a brown noser but I'll I'll pick Homecoming over those bands any day and wow. uh, like I it's still an album that I listen to. I don't know, probably every few months at least. Um, I, I just got my second copy of it on CD, so now I've got a, a copy in my van as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's one of those records, and I'm sure there's lots of nostalgia attached to it for me, and um, I don't know, every time I put it on, there's just so, there, there's so much engaging on it, whereas, I don't know, I find like with no effects, like putting an album on, it's like, you know, it's not bad, it's no effects, but I, I right. just don't connect with it the same way, so that's not a slight to them. I mean, obviously, they're a huge influential band, but so, yeah. Sure, but I'll, I'll definitely say uh, th- that's that's awesome to hear, but certainly by the late 90s, they were not the like scrappy, hungry band trying to find an audience they were on top of the world where we were like yeah we were scrutinizing every line of every song and you know desperate to uh to make a great record which i mean i know i can't speak for the whole band but i know at least for andy and i we didn't think we had made a record of that of that level wow we we thought it like we 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 gave ourselves the leniency of saying none of those bands that we thought were great had made great first records. Yeah, they all kind of grew into it, and so That's we were true. like, "All right, this was like our first shot. We'll we'll grow with time." But no, I mean, we 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 thought we had done okay for a starting, but we didn't think it would be any kind of, you know, we didn't think twenty years later people would still be listening to it. Yeah, <laughs> is it an album that that you enjoy still listening to? Is it or is it kind of hard listening to it, or does it not interest you anymore? that's that's a great question you know i I certainly don't listen to it like all the time when i put it on i i definitely enjoy it 
it, I mean, cause you know, it brings back memories of such right. a fun time. Um, but no, you know, in terms of like our performances on it. Yeah. Like I, I still hear all the mistakes that I heard as soon as we submitted it, we were like, oh, okay, I guess we'll let this go. But there's so much on here. We wish we could, <laughs> we could have made better. Yeah. And see, I, I mean, I, I don't know what those mistakes are. I, I definitely do kind of get the feeling that, you know, whether it was intentional or not, I'm not sure, you know, it's, it's not, you know, a perfect polished record, you know, like say something that right. even life in general or slowly going the way the Buffalo is, but I don't know, there's something to it. And I think that's why I like it so much. I put it on, you know, it sounds, you know, the quality is good enough that it's not like hard on the ears, but it's also not so polished that it kind of, you know, I don't know, there's just a, maybe a bit more grit and depth to it. So I don't know. I, I think that's, that's a cool thing. Yeah, no, I'm- I'll definitely say, I think we all worked harder on that record than anything I ever did, and probably any of them uh, did later. Uh, and, and a lot of that was because, you know, I don't know how much we believed in ourselves, or to be honest, how much we believed in each other. Hmm. Um, we were, you know, we were hard on each other, and we were, there was a competitiveness in that. And so that there was, um, yeah, there was a scrutiny on, like, literally every line you know can can we add a harmony does it need a harmony are we overthinking this is this verse too much like the other verse whereas like you know down the road i don't know i I care less about that kind of stuff yeah you know you wanted the song in general to feel good but if there was a kind of sameness across i mean that's something andy snyder especially has always had a filter for that he wants there to sort of be development he doesn't want to hear the same you know the same verse or the same chorus the exact same way twice right um, and I think that ethic was strong on that record, that yeah. there's just a strong sense of development. There's always kind of like, what else can we do? How can we improve this? And mm-hmm. that, that lasted from the writing process through the recording. Um, and the sense that none of it was quite good enough was always pushing us mm. uh, a little bit further. And so, yeah, I don't think the final project, the final product is a masterpiece, but you do hear the, like the passion, you hear how hard we were. Working oh yeah. On it. Yeah, was was the producer on this album very involved with that, or was it kind <laughs> no. of you guys? Okay, and that was our introduction to the to the idea of a producer. We had never like done a full length record. We had only done all of us had done like you know weekend projects where you know there's no producer, there's an engineer. And on this record, we believed we were getting like a producer, but re- I mean, I I would say. Uh, Donald Cameron, who had, had worked on some bad religion records and was, was a great guy. I don't know how much he really connected with or fully like understood mm-hmm. what we were trying to do. Yeah. And so just kind of left, like, I mean, I want to say pretty much every take we did, he was cool with, and we were like, are you serious? No, we have to do that again. So we, I would say that album is a lot more self-produced. Mm. Um, and he was, yeah, he was, he was pretty darn passive. The, the, the most he would do, and I do remember a couple of times of him doing this, was just sort of like if an argument was developing and like we couldn't get any kind of consensus, he would just sort of weigh in and be like, yeah, I kind of think, you know, this, this is the way you should go. And that happened so rarely. And he was so kind of mellow about it, but we respected him. So when he did that, we, that would usually tip the scales. Yeah. But it was pretty rare. 
Do you know why or like who made the decision for you guys to record there versus, you know, with someone like Steve Kravak? Because there was a lot of, of bands, you know, around that time that were going to Steve, you know, especially with, you know, the rise of MXPX. Right. I mean, uh, Slick Shoes was recording their second record, Burnout, yeah. at West Beach with Steve Kravak, like before and after our sessions. Oh, wow. Like the night we got to Hollywood to record it, we went out to the studio because we knew Slick Shoes was out there. And just kind of got to watch them. I still remember, I don't remember the name of the song, but I remember the riff Jackson was playing with uh, Steve recording it. And yeah, we were like, this is, this is so cool. Um, but we were kind of stoked. We weren't working with Steve Kravak just because like you say, like MXPX had now slick shoes was, um, and, uh, it was, it was totally the label. I think it was all bill, um, bill power yeah uh i think like you know it was just in talking to him that he called us one day he's like hey what do you guys think about recording at west beach studios with donald cameron he produced uh the bad religion record um um oh man not uh, uh, a generator at at west beach and we just heard that we're like yes (laughs) like a guy with no like no christian band has worn with this guy there's no kind of smell of that on it that's true and it was a, you know, he had worked with bad religion. We didn't know anything else about him, but we were like, for sure, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm sure Steve Kravak would have made a great record for you, but I, like I said, I, I he do would have think kicked this, our butts. Yeah. Yeah. That, would have been so that, that might have changed part of it too, but uh, yeah, it, it's kind of cool to, to stand out a bit because, you know, not that, not that all of Steve's records sound the same by any means. I um, mean, you know, they definitely do kind of have that polished sound to it, but. I feel like the the end product of this suits that album. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's one of those things. I guess you you don't really know. So it just kind of is what it is. Yeah. I mean, you're right. At the time, I do remember thinking about that, especially as we were like a week into the recording sessions. I'm like, man, he's really passive. And we had seen Steve Kravak work, and he was like he was not passive. He was very active. Yeah. As a producer, and I yeah, I remember at the time thinking about it, but I haven't thought about about it much since. And like, what might sound different? Yeah. In that record, if we, but yeah, there's, there's a million different possibilities when you go down the road like that. Yeah, so I have a few comments about uh, the guitars on this album. So I mean, the guitar playing really stands out to me on this album. The main one is that the guitar writing is a lot less kind of riff oriented and focuses more on kind of using you know the the high octave playing, um, mm-hmm. which isn't you know by any means outside the punk realm. But um, I don't know that that just stands out to me. I was listening to this album this week and. You know, just the main riff is typically always, you know, kind of octave playing versus, you know, maybe a slick shoes type where, you know, it's more like kind of picking single notes for the for the main riff. Was that um, just kind of your style or what was influencing that style of playing or? Yeah, I, I think we tended to think in contrasts a lot. And locally, like I say, uh, Fury 66 kind of dominated our local scene and they were very kind of single note riffy. They did some octaves, but it it wasn't dominant. And so, um, yeah, I want to sort of say we, we heard that a bit more in No Effects and bands like right. that. Yeah. And and No Use for a Name. Yeah. Uh, who also, I we didn't talk about No Use for a Name that much. And I, I don't remember anybody in the band being like a huge fan of theirs. But I hear a lot of similarities. Yeah, definitely. In what we were doing. And I think the thing there is that like... Um, that kind of octave playing, I think, serves better. When, when you have a song that is basically structured around a vocal melody, Yeah, 
a heart like those kinds of octave background riffs i think better sort of complement a song like that as opposed to like slick shoes would their songs were like they started with those riffs the vocals kind of came last yeah um and so that was a contrast we we definitely you know we really we really loved slick shoes but that was a a, a contrast we could tell that we were kind of more like a band like no use for a name where it was very much like a vocal melody based song. Definitely. And then we were just developing guitar stuff to complement that versus like Slick Shoes's uh, strongest influence, which they were quick to admit was strung out where it was very much like the guitars and the guitar riffs and the, and the drum stuff was like the dominant idea of the song and right. the vocals came in to sort of fill that in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool to, you know, um, that there is those different elements of punk. You know, when I think of, you know, you guys, Slick Shoes, MXPX, it, it's all mm. different. MXPX was more just kind of straight chords just with a single guitar player. You know, Slick Shoes was more of like the single picking riffing, and you guys, you know, had your own style with the kind of octave. So it's it's a really, mm. um, yeah, it, it, it stands out to me. Like, And I think that's one reason why I like it. And again, um, with the focus on the vocals, because um, like, yeah, when you mentioned No Use for a Name, like bands like that, like it's very much driven around, you know, the melody of the song and the octaves kind of, um, kind of, um, oh, what's the word, kind of go on top of that or whatever and, and just makes makes for a great song. So yeah, I was just interested kind of what what was inspiring that or if it was just kind of the style of playing. Yeah, I think, you know, it was, I think Tony Sly from No Use for a Name and Ted Bond I think they probably wrote songs very similarly. Like, the, you know, they wrote, uh, they wrote them. And actually that's true with Joey Cape from Lagwagon too. Yeah. The songs would start with just the singer and an acoustic guitar. And it didn't get more complicated until like there was a basic, uh, song that could be sung like in more of a campfire style. Right. And then you sort of, you know, so these are, I mean, they're basically folk songs that you just made faster and put a bunch of riffs over, but you don't want the riff to detract right. from what's going on. So, yeah. Yeah, I just feel like man, you you must have whoever was playing, you know those those parts. Like that's that's so much playing up there and kind of remembering where all those high octaves go. And yes, yeah. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yeah, on our first tour, I remember like a couple of uh, opening bands would make that comment. They're like, "How do you remember all that stuff?" Yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we we practice a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing that stands out to me, guitar wise, and I remember. Picking up on this, you know, when it first came out and still, is how many pick slides are on this album? I don't know if I can think of any other punk album that has so many pick slides. You know, there's some songs that have, you know, five, six, seven pick slides on a song, which I'm a huge fan of. I, I love pick slides. It's just usually, you know, it kind of just accents a song. Um, but that's one thing, like, even myself, like, when I'm running on guitar, like, I love just adding pick slides in just, like, whenever, right? It's an easy little transition. It's a cool yep. sound. It's, like, fairly specific to the punk genre. And, uh, yeah, I was it's curious a, as to what that was all about. That's a total bad religion thing. Like, oh, okay. they do that a lot. And uh, it's funny because, like, that's something Andy was, like, really good at and his tone served well at. And I will be honest, there <laughs> There were there were several pick slides that needed multiple takes on my on my okay. end on that record because yeah my tone was a little thinner because you know I'm kind of playing I'm doing more of the chords and Andy's doing more of the riffs okay. so I'm not quite as overdriven and so the pick slides could sound a little weak yeah and especially because I remember Andy was sort of like criticizing me that I, I I wasn't 
particularly good <laughs> pick slides because I'd rake my pick down like multiple strings. It's like, dude, you got to do it just down like one string. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't do it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's one of those things that makes the album unique. Every time I put it on, like I'm always I'm always waiting for the pick slides. So <laughs> it's it's funny the, the things at the time. You know, you you, you did it because you were influenced by another band, but now it's right. something that makes that album stand out. I still don't know. You know, out of all the punk albums that have come out after that, I've never picked up on one that has that many. So good job on that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about comparing it in that in that way to other other records yeah so lyrically this album covers a lot more ground than many of the punk albums that were coming out at that time you know maybe especially on tooth and nail you know it had a much Mm -hmm. more serious undertone to it and tackled you know some touchier topics Uh, what were you guys hoping to accomplish with the lyrics and and, i mean i'm not sure if you wrote any of them or not or if it was a band effort or um, if that was just kind of ted's writing i wrote the lyrics on my songs um which were uh yeah in memory, uh, who am I? And wait, didn't I write three? <laughs> uh, there's gotta be, Oh, in Miami. Duh. Um, so I wrote, the, I wrote the lyrics for those. Uh, yeah. And then Andy wrote the lyrics on his and Ted wrote the lyrics on his. So we all, we all had our own sort of lyrical style, but I will say what there was as a shared sort of, um, desire. Well, I'll, I'll I'll say it's it's something I I picked up from Ted and Andy. They just like Ted is a is a brilliant guy. I mean Andy is too. They're both like intellectuals. Yeah. And that was not really like my background, but hanging out with those guys I, I would say in many ways sort of changed my life. Hmm. As far as that went, just I mean not just in terms of songwriting, even just in terms of like the kinds of conversations and yeah. um ways of thinking about things that I wanted to be a part of. They, uh, yeah, they didn't want dribble. They didn't want words that were just holding a place. They didn't want kind of just, uh, super common themes. They were, uh, they really wanted the lyrics to be of the same level of quality as everything else that we were trying to do. Yep. Uh, I would say for Ted, that was maybe even like that mattered more than anything else. Mm. Like the, the lyrics needed to be, the main thing that was good about a song right. and he was a i mean he's a brilliant songwriter i i had never i had never even worked with any other musicians that aspired to that <laughs> right so it was yeah it was it was really fun to be around and it was very challenging whereas you know growing up in this sort of beach boys and um beatles kind of well i should say that early beatles <laughs> my dad brought me up on like the beatles like first four records whereas i had never really heard, uh, you know, the later Beatles stuff. So getting to know Ted, he was a, a huge fan of like revolver, Sergeant Pepper era, uh, Beatles and was super influenced by it. Whereas I, I wanted to write punk versions of, I want to hold your hand. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so though, when, when one of my songs didn't get through, that was usually why <laughs> it was because the lyrics were trite and like stupidly romantic without really saying anything. The fact I will even say the reason I sang my Annie on the record was because like, we think the song's pretty good, but Ted's like, but I don't want to sing it. He's like, I don't, I don't want to sing those, those lyrics. It's like, oh, you should just sing it yourself. And I think it was mostly because they just found the lyrics kind of cheesy. Yeah. Like, eh, that's fine. Uh, they were, they were super cheesy, but that was something I had a much higher tolerance for than, than the other guys did. Yeah. Well, what's a punk album without some cheesy, uh, love lyrics, right? <laughs> But I, I think it would be a better record for for the other guys 
uh, Heath didn't care. Heath was pretty open-minded to all that kind of stuff. But the other three guys were like, no, we, we don't want to be that kind of band. Yeah, I but on the on the serious side, like I do think it does give the album, um, you know, some more longevity because of the lyrics. You know, I mean, I I love going back and listening to all those old punk albums, but sometimes it's like, yeah, I I can't relate to you know, you don't want to be like singing about high school and all this, you know, when you're, you know, our right. age. Whereas a lot totally. of these songs, right? It's like okay, like there's still something here I can kind of grab onto and. And uh, I guess everything has its place, right? You're writing about what's in the moment. You're not thinking about, you know, 20 years from when you're writing it. So that, that's right. fair. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was fun. Uh, Ted and uh, Stephen Newfeld, the current guitar player for Craig's Brother, they did like an acoustic thing online like a week ago. I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw that. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, they, uh, they did Who Am I? And I Ted opened it. I thought it was really great. He was like, this is a song we wrote when we were teenagers. And uh, it's about trying to figure out who you are, which is sort of the common goal of all teenagers. Yeah. And I thought, I'm like, that's like a really good way to put that and a really good uh, way to preface it for singing in your 40s when you're now like a parent of teenagers. Right. And you can kind of relate to what they're going through because you've got this song that shows like, I went through this too. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was pretty yeah, cool. I'll have, to, I'll have to go and find that. How do you feel about Craig's brother you know that they never really released another album similar to homecoming so i know that's you know there, there's lots of bands who you know they put out an album kind of gain a following and then the next album you know which i know you weren't on and the other ones um but kind of as an outsider you know where, did you ever hope there would be kind of more albums that similar you know vein of homecoming or was it just kind of a, a natural progression and you were okay you know as an outsider with what they did i, I was I loved everything they did after I left. And, and I, I mean, of course, Lost at Sea was like the first thing they did I wasn't a part of. And I found it totally fascinating. Hmm. I was like, this is so much not Homecoming Part 2. Yeah. Um, and it really took some big risks. And I oh, thought yeah. it was incredible, uh, especially because, you know, I, I thought I already thought Ted was a great lyricist. but I thought he kind of upped his game a bit hmm. uh, on that record. Um but it also confirmed something I knew from working with him that Ted, he, uh, he is a fantastic songwriter and like, and a, a, a really good musician, but I'll say he's, he is a irreducibly collaborative music maker. Mm. You know what I mean? And like in everything Craig's brother has put out bears the marks of those collaborations, right? Like lost at sea. You can just really tell, uh, like Ted was not only like, you know, it was not just that Dan McClintock was like playing guitar on that record. Like he was helping Ted develop these songs. And so they were developed in a way that was just sounds a bit more like Dan. Like if you've listened to in the inspection, uh, 12 records, right. Yeah. They don't sound identical to that, but you can sort of hear the, um, the marks of influence on that. And then when Steven from Hey Mike, uh, has joined and, and he's kind of been just a major player with them uh, since then. Like that's kind of been Ted's main collaborator. And so, yeah, th I mean, the fact that they don't sound exactly like homecoming, I mean, it wasn't a surprise. It's not really a letdown. I would say the insidious lie felt like a bit more of a turn back that direction. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's still, I mean, I at that time I definitely um 
didn't appreciate that change. You know, I was, you know, a teenager and, and was used to, you know, bands like MXPX, you know, where, mm-hmm. or No Effects, where it's like you knew what the next album or when a new album was coming out, you knew what to expect. And I didn't, you know, and this was kind of, you know, um, I mean, early 2000s or late 90s, right? Like there wasn't much, you know, internet and, so like, you, right. you weren't really hearing, you know, songs before they came out, you know, unless it was on like a sampler or something. Um, sure. So I just remember being so confused when Lost at Sea, which we're, we're not going to get into. Um, but just, yeah, it was just like, what like what happened here? I This is not <laughs> the same band, you know. But again, you know, you, you don't really hear about like, oh, there's different member changes or this and this is going on. And so, um, but, right. I, you know, I, I can go now and listen to it and enjoy it because I have a bit more understanding about that but yeah so you and andy left the band you know shortly like you said after that touring cycle for homecoming um so what kind of brought that about you know you mentioned you wanted to focus more on singing um Mm -hmm. you know was that enough reason to leave or kind of how did that come about that you two guys decided to to part ways yeah i mean that was that was really the main thing uh especially because i mean first from the label and then once the record was released i was i the, the feedback I was getting for Miami was really positive. Um, so I was like, yeah, I think I want to do this. So, um, yeah, yeah, it really didn't take any, any more than that. And I also just kind of wanted the freedom to be able, you know, like if, if I like a song, I want to be able to play that song. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. have to sort of go through the committee <laughs> of, right. of approval that was sort of going on in Craig's Brother. Yeah, so what inspired Too Bad Eugene? You know, the name, the band, did you kind of have an idea of what you wanted to sound like um, or not sound like? You know, what what inspired the songs on At, at, at Any Rate? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, the um, the biggest influence, like, um, I loved all kinds of stuff um, musically, but over the years I had definitely become you know, if somebody asked me what my favorite band was, I didn't hesitate to say descendants and right. all, which I kind of you know, thought of as one, one band. Right. And they did that more kind of mid tempo. Um, you know, what I thought of was kind of Ramonesy, but much more, you know, much more complex, but like, yeah. it wasn't the double time, no effects kind of sound. Yeah. And I, and I just, I wanted to do that kind of thing. And, um, uh, I'm trying to think of other, I mean, yeah, descendants and all were definitely like the main conscious influences. It's funny. I listened back on too bad Eugene records. I'm like, you know, they really don't sound that much like the descendants, but, um, other than just sort of wanting to play mid tempo, melodic, simple three chord, like, um, yeah, simply we, you know, we had, we had worked so hard on like these super riffy kind of metally things, with Craig's brother, the idea of just like, let's go the other way. Let's do like really simple, um, just really kind of stuck in your head melody type of things. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was, at least that was, that was just sort of me. And it was going, Andy, you know, like where he was like, he and Ted were calling the shots in Craig's brother, leaving and starting this other band was my idea. And I somehow talked Andy into doing it. But I think he was just kind of like, all right, like you want to go super simple. That's weird. Let's try that. And I think over over time he was a little less satisfied by that. Mm. But for our first like demo and for uh, going into an eighty rate, he's like, all right, like let's try this. It was kind of I think it was a challenge for him because he was kind of outside his, you know, Metallica 
right, yeah. uh, basis of of music making. Yeah. And did the songs on this album, did they come together pretty quickly? Like, had you already been um, writing these or was it like after you were done with Craig's brother that you started these? Like, how did the songs come together and um, kind of yeah, how did you no, approach that, was, that writing? That was... Uh, yeah, there there was definitely not a single song written before I left Craig's brother. It was all kind of stream of consciousness. That, and that was something I was just loving about it. It was this the freedom of the simplicity to be able to write a song in like an afternoon. <laughs> yeah, and like show it to the guys. We play it and practice like the first time. I'm like, perfect. That's how we're gonna do it. Oh, that's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it, it allowed for a much greater speed of development. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there, like, had you thought about releasing this on Tooth & Nail? Was there any talk of that, or or were you just kind of done with that? We talked to Tooth & Nail, and they were uh, they were interested. They were open, but we were like, we don't want to keep going through this, you know, this pigeonholing thing that happens once your CDs are in Christian bookstores. Right. Um, Craig's brother had had some controversy because of the song Going Blind on homecoming, like right. uh, like thousands of CDs were sent back from yeah. family Christian bookstores. And it wasn't even that like we found that like, Oh, that was a hard thing to deal with. We're like, I don't want to be in a band that would even be in the situation to have to deal with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we, that's, we, so we were like, you know, we just told tooth and nail, we didn't really want to be on the label. And, you know, I don't think we were super tactful about that. Um, they were probably not super, super happy about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, the other reason we didn't was because we had heard MXPX wanted to start their own record label and we had like reached out right away and they were like, you know, they were interested right away. So we were like, okay, let's get out of our tooth and nail deal. Yeah. Um, because that was built in like with our Craig's brother contract, right. They did have first rights to too bad Eugene. So we kind of had to, mm-hmm. you know, talk them out of it. Um, so we did. And, you know, yeah, I look back on a lot of that and we were kids. We didn't really know what we were doing. Yeah, exactly. But. Yeah. So what was that experience like, you know, recording with Mike, releasing the album on Rock City, um, you know, then touring with MXPX? How was that whole experience kind of compared to what you had done previously? Like in lots of ways, it was, it was awesome. We were totally starstruck because, you know, this band that was still in the midst of this kind of what it felt like a meteoric rise was giving us all this attention, giving us these opportunities. We were like, you know, spending weeks at, uh, at Mike's house recording this record. It all felt very like, this is so cool. They were going to take us out on tour. That was amazing. Um, the two things that were hard about it were the rec- we They weren't able to get the record out before the tour. So we just kind of uh... felt like we were spinning our wheels. Like we're, we're out here on the road with nothing to sell. Yeah, that's um, brutal. We can sell our T-shirts, but who wants the T-shirt of the band you can't get their CD of? Yeah. Um, but the other thing that was hard was, and I don't know if, if I, I'm sure this was a factor when you saw us play in Winnipeg, but I couldn't sustain night after night on the road. I was losing my voice like every night. Hmm. And that's not, not something I foresaw, you know, just um, I, I had sung. You know, I had sung in practices. I had I had done some singing. I I was doing my Annie when we would play shows with Craig's brother. I, I would do that live, but I wasn't doing full sets multiple nights in a row. Right. Yeah. And so that was really a bummer. I didn't know that mm. 
my voice would be so unable to handle it. I was writing songs at the top of my range because I could I could do that in the studio and in practices for you know because you can just sort of take breaks when you need one, but you yeah. can't <laughs> when you're when you're in the middle of a set. So that that made that tour kind of hard. And a couple weeks into that tour, it was like you know also just being young and kind of undisciplined. Just the same way with Craig's brother, I'm like ah you know. I don't like the situation. I want to change. I want to have my own band. Yeah. During that tour, I'm like, I don't like the situation. Maybe I don't want life on the road. <laughs> so did that affect the touring, um, you know, schedule? Did you guys just do that tour and then you kind of stop then or how that yeah, happened? Yeah. We pretty much, we did that tour and that was, that was it. And once we got home, you know, yeah, we were, we were a little grumpy. We were like, Hey, why isn't the record out? And it still took kind of a long time to get out. Uh, and by the time the record I was actually getting pressed, we were like, okay, we got a bunch of new stuff. Can we, can we go back in the studio? And they were like, well, A, this record just came out. So you guys need to get on the road to promote that. And we were like, screw that. We, <laughs> we did the road. It kind of sucks. Yeah. And hmm. um, so, yeah, I look back with a lot of regret on that. And I've connected with Mike Herrera on all that since. And he's been super cool super gracious and just yeah. being like yeah we, we were all kids we didn't know what we were doing but yeah i feel i think i was i was a little what's the word spoiled i guess just being given all these great opportunities but i was like no i want to do it this other way yeah so so once that had happened we were like okay why don't we just part ways because you know once they they had the record out but then they couldn't get distribution Right. I was going to say, I don't remember seeing it anywhere. No. And so that was, that was all just kind of a frustration. And part of that was us. Like they probably could have got distribution if they could have guaranteed, you know, 60 dates of touring or something like that, but we weren't doing it. Yeah. So, so we went over to tooth and nail on like, you know, we went back to tooth and nail on the condition, like, Hey, we've got stuff we want. We're ready to record right now, but we would rather not tour. They're like, we don't care. Like, perfect. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Moonlighting was your follow-up album, and this album, again, you know, brings a, a pretty drastic shift in sound, and I, I absolutely love that album. You know, it has a very unique feel and sound to it. So what played into the progression of the sound on this album, and what were you hoping to achieve with um, the direction that these songs took? So what I would say, so like, um, at any rate, was 15 songs. Yeah all written kind of quickly and there's a few songs on it at any rate i'm like i'm really proud of but as a record as a whole it, it feels like the it sonically sounds great yeah but i think it probably would have been a better record if we had done fewer songs and developed those songs more yeah that's fair so going into but but it was also an exhausting experience because we spent like a month away from home um, sleeping on couches yeah. up in, in another state recording that record. So our goal going into Moonlighting was, um, yeah, fewer songs with a bit more development on them, but also like a less exhausting um, recording experience. Mm. So we wanted to just go into like a local project studio. We wanted to produce it ourselves because... Um, yeah, there was a, there was a few places where like uh, Mike's Mike Herrera's like musical sensibilities are like very uh, you know they're pretty stripped. He he's really into kind of you know he's really into Elvis Costello. He's really into, into the Clash. Yeah. He wants kind of an immediate 
I mean, I, he would kind of lay out principles of songs. He felt like you want the vocal starting as soon as possible. You want any kind of non-vocal section to go as fast as possible. Whereas we were coming in, we had a couple of guitar solos and a few that were like a little bit more complex. Mike was like, that sounds too metal. And so we were making things a little bit more simple. We were taking out longer introductions. And in the end of that process, we were like, this feels a little bit less us mm. than we kind of wanted it to be. So we were like, no producer. We're just gonna, we'll go into like a local project studio and we'll just do it ourselves. I'll definitely look back on that, on that and say we were way too cocky <laughs> because yeah, when we were done with that record, yeah, it, it, I think how rich sonically at any rate sounded, we took for granted. We just kind of mm -hmm. thought that was easy. You yeah. sort of plug in your instruments and it'll come out that sounding like that. When we got the final mixes of Moonlighting. We're like, why does this sound so thin? Mm. Well, you know, my voice, you know, I felt like it, it kind of sounded really shrill um too much reliance on pitch correction um and uh, you know especially because we did fewer songs there's one or two i don't think totally worked but we still had to keep them because we didn't have you know we weren't doing what a lot of the other bands were doing at the time which was like recording 20 songs yeah for a 12 song record because you can just you know go through and pick the ones that really worked yeah so yeah i, I i've we, you asked you asked before about, about homecoming listening to it today you know uh and how does it feel i'll say like for all of the things that i hear the mistakes on that one i'm i still kind of have a more pleasant experience listening to homecoming than both the two bad eugene records okay. there's, there's more i would change on both those records yeah um, interesting and actually i feel like too bad eugene never quite never quite got the opportunity to make the record i think we were capable of hmm. um which would have been what uh, just something, you know, number one, I think we did need a producer, but one that we were a little bit more um, of the same mind with. Yeah. Um, just to check some of our own decision making and, you know, to make sure the album sounded, sounded rich and thick. But um, so, yeah, it's, it's something I still think about every yeah. once in a while. I've, I've got, I mean, because it's been so long, I've got tons of songs. Hmm. Um, Man, make it happen. So. Yeah, that's just kind of getting old and lazy, and and have well, lazy. I mean, having way too much work. Yeah, but yeah. Maybe someday. Yeah. So you guys didn't do any touring on this album? Like, did you play any one-off shows or festivals? Oh yeah, or anything? We, we played shows. Yeah, no festivals. We actually didn't last that long after Moonlighting came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. What happened with that? Did it just kind of die out? Like, was was there much of a response to this album, or was it just no. you know a bunch of things at, at play that kind of just made it die no i mean number one because like we wanted to do it locally and in a way that didn't sort of stress us out we um we did we did sessions sort of like um kind of shorter weekend sessions and then those got kind of stretched out from each other as like our schedules were busy or the or the studio was booked so it kind of took us a long time to finish uh, and by the time we did finish it and then it was actually released we did play a couple of shows, but those shows were a little underwhelming. Mm. And, and so, yeah, our energy for it was just sort of waning. I had had, um, a kid, my brother already had, uh, I think at that point he had two kids. Um, so we all had jobs and we had lives. And when we did put in the effort to play some shows, it just didn't have the energy that it had, you know, that it used to have. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, there wasn't the, the same level of, interest there weren't a lot of people and they weren't that excited hmm. so 
we were, I, yeah, I think we maybe played three or four shows after the record came out, and we we're uh, like, eh, I think we're good. Oh, that's too bad. What was uh, was the Tooth and Nail have any thoughts or opinions on the album, or about you guys ending so quickly after they released that album? <laughs> no, I mean they might have. I, we never really had a lot of conversations with them about it. Okay, um, just sent them an email, said, "Hey, we're done." I don't even know if we ever did that. To so be they, honest, they're, they're still they're still waiting for that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that's not true because then we did start another band, um, uh, which became Thrush. Okay. And when we were ready to start doing uh, stuff with that band, Tooth and Nail had gone through a transition. Like they were, you know, on our time with them, they were, I think, owned by Brandon Evil. Yeah, but then he had sold it right. to I forget who. So now it was like kind of EMI or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there was different people involved. Um, but when we sent them our stuff for Thrush, I, I don't think I ever got a response. Okay, and what style so, was was that band? <laughs> I guess you would have to describe it as new metal. Sweet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe Tooth I mean, and Nail wasn't the best option, anyways. Even if it was good, maybe. I mean, they were. They they had such variety. Yeah. Um, who we, I mean we we were friends with Chad Pearson, whose label uh, the Militia Group yeah. was like blowing up at the time, and he did give us a response, but he was just honest. He was like, "Dude, like my biggest band is Copeland, and I I don't know how to market what you guys are doing. It's right. just like it's it doesn't really fit with the bands on my label." And so we we're like, "Yeah, we understood that." Yeah. So. I mean, and I'll say th- th- that band's direction was totally like we had left Craig's brother and done. T- we had done what I wanted to do. Andy was like, this is kind of weird to me, but I'll try it. Right. We had done it. Andy was like, I tried it. I- that was not my favorite. So let's go. He's like, you know, I want to do something now. And, and, and so the next band was like super riff oriented, super like heavy and, and slower and dark. And so I was like, man, this is totally outside my wheelhouse. But you're right. You did what I wanted to do. I'll try this. Hmm. And so it was totally, yeah, he was bringing stuff. When we were having band meetings, like, okay, what what we kind of, what to set our compass. <sighs> it was He would play it, and I was like, this is horrifying. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't like this stuff at all. And, and we'd get into arguments. He's like, whatever, dude. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll see if I can kind of make some stuff that does make me interested vocally. Yeah over what was going on. And it actually was a great experience. That band was like the best time I ever had making music in a band. Oh, wow. Was that band thrush. So it was super frustrating that we could not find an audience. Yeah. Is there any recordings of that out? Like, did you guys make yeah. an album or we put out a four song EP called Eon, um, just like independently. I know, um, a website called Indie Vision Music distributed oh, yeah. it. Yeah, they probably still have copies of it. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely remember the name, but uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you if I would heard any of the songs or not. Yeah, no. I mean, if you were a fan of Craig's Brother, Too Bad Eugene, it would have been like, "What is this?" It was, it was pretty different. Yeah. Um, well, I was kind of used to it by that point, so that would have been okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the changes. Yeah. So when you look back on your time in Craig's brother, Too Bad Eugene, you know, Tooth and Nail era, like, what are some of your favorite memories? What kind of stands out? You know, um, you know, for for me, just you know, Craig's brother is always you know lumped in with that like golden era of you know Tooth and Nail, you know, fat epitaph punk like. 
Does, mm-hmm. it, does that does that stand out to you, or you know, do you feel too far removed from that, or um, maybe that's no, two separate that was, kind of questions? But no, that was it. That was uh, it was super fun to be a part of that, and we were kind of aware. I would say by the like by the middle of the summer of 1998, we were pretty aware that we were getting to be a part of something pretty special. Hmm. Um, I mean, when we were like getting ready for that like in 97 when we were trying to get signed and stuff we felt like we were total latecomers to a party that had started in 1994 right the, like the larger california fat records epitaph records punk thing we were like oh man we're total like upstart newbies but then when we got yeah when we had our record out that summer of 1998 you know being at denny's restaurants at like midnight with slick shoes and dogwood was like some of the funnest stuff. Cause we're like, we're all like 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Some company up in Seattle is giving us stupid amounts of money, not giving us, but they're spending stupid amounts of money to put us in these really nice recording studios. We never could have paid for ourselves. Yeah. Um, and we're getting to go out on the road and play shows where we look outside and there's a line around the block to get in. We're like, Holy crap. How do we get here? Hmm. Uh, it was, it was super fun. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many copies Homecoming sold? I I have no idea. Um, We got statements. I'm sure I could still get them if I asked. I I think I still do get a statement from EMI like every couple of years. Okay. But I don't know what I'd do with them because I never saw any money from it. Right. Um, Yeah, you don't know if it was 10,000, 30,000. I, I literally have no idea. Yeah. No, that's cool. I, I'm just always so intrigued. I'm, I'm often kind of, you know, in, in my mind, especially back then, you know, I just thought every tooth and nail band was huge and was just like doing super <laughs> well. And, you know, now that I'm, you know, talking with more of the, the guys from bands from then, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it definitely wasn't what it seemed. And, um, but then on sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, that album sold, you know, 60,000 albums. So, yeah. I mean, so. The the MXPXs and Supertones. Yeah, yeah I know those time. ones definitely sold. Well, lots. and like I know Slick Shoes, like their their first couple of records, I think did pretty darn well, and and Goaty Hook was doing really well at yeah. the time. Um, I don't I don't remember actual numbers, but I I knew them at the time. I just don't remember them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know. Do you still keep up with like any of those of those bands or you know punk bands from that era, or are you kind of past that uh, that style? Oh no! I you know uh, Slick Shoes new album's coming out like tonight. I'm totally looking forward. Yeah. To it. Oh man, can't wait. Yeah. So yeah, no, I I'm, I still I've I've definitely broadened as I've got old, gotten older and what I'm interested in. But I still love. Uh, I mean, I I will say when Propagandi puts out a new album, yep. that's like I I don't look forward to almost anything more <laughs> than yeah. a new Propagandi album. Well, unfortunately, that's only like every four or five years or. Well, you that's know, why whatever. it's such a huge deal when it happens. But yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I mean, there there are so many bands from that era that are still, you know, maybe not going as hard as then, but you know, there's still tons of bands from then that are are still putting out albums every few years. You know, maybe touring here and there, and and so yeah, it, it, it's cool for for us guys that are fans of that music that it hasn't you know totally died out. Yeah. I mean, MXPX has had a total renaissance, and oh, that yeah. has brought like you know they've partner with the five iron frenzy and slick shoes is getting in on that and they're all they're all doing really well Uh, i feel like mxpx i i haven't talked to my carrera a lot lately we got to play one show with them like three or four years ago down in la it was so much fun 
and uh, Jeremiah from Slick Shoes was there. I got to catch up with him after years of not seeing him. Oh, right on. Um, so I, I keep some contact with those guys on like on on social media and stuff. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's not very much. But what I was what I was on my way to saying was it it it, it seemed from my perspective like Mike was kind of um, entrepreneurial and figuring out this kind of new way yeah. of, you know, of, you know, doing these huge kind of weekend events that were being promoted months in advance for just kind of single or, or maybe two night, uh, things in yeah. certain cities and people flying out for them. It's like, Whoa, that's, that's a whole new model of keeping an audience satisfied. And that lets, you know, I mean, the other guys, uh, Tom and Yuri have, you know, jobs, Yeah. but as long as it's weekend stuff, they can do it. And yeah, those are all things that I'm like, yeah, if, if I had a little more energy and organization, I would love to be part of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that just depends on your, your life situation that might work for some guys and for others. It's like that, that's just way too much hustle for, you know, the risk of, of what, you know, might the, what the payoff might be. So sure. But yeah, definitely awesome guys like that can do that. And yeah, love it. Well, Adam, it's been awesome getting to, to pick your brain on, on music and talk about some of my favorite albums. So thanks so much for, for coming on today and, and sharing those stories and just, yeah, being willing to uh, share those experiences. It's been awesome. Absolutely. I love going down memory lane myself. All right. Look, there's only one return, okay? And it ain't of the king, it's of the Jedi. Oh, Star Wars geek. You'll have to excuse him. He's not down with the trilogy.